0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you had a good weekend. And hard to believe that um, we're not too far from Easter. But one thing I do know is that, as always, it's good to be back on the air. Of course, when I say that, sometimes it makes it sound as though it's been weeks since I was on the air last. But I do know that when I give you all least two or three days uh, time to get caught up on uh, podcasts in general. To me, that does seem like a long time, but at the same time, that uh, two to three day span, and in certain instances, few, where it's been a little bit uh, longer, say maybe a week's time, it's actually not so bad because uh, there again, life can be busy, you know, schedules can be hectic, but all of us should have time to get caught up When it comes to listening to stuff that is relevant, especially when it comes to the form of uh, podcasts that provide um, essential information on topics that we have been taught from years past. And more often than not, what the textbooks taught us was one thing, but the podcasts, along with the books in general, that is the books that, um, that talk about the events that have been written in more recent years they do shed new light. They shed light on what had not been told before to make and result a better story, not only from the newest books that are out there on various uh, topics, say whether it's the Boston Massacre or uh, or about, um, say, with uh, John Adams or Thomas Jefferson uh, or about Thomas Paine, uh, just to name a few. The bottom line is is that um there are new um, things that um are being revealed about the sacrifices that um that were um required or the sacrifices that had to be made uh to ensure that um in the case of the American Revolution that uh, America did find a way to um earn her uh separation from England not just so much in the form of a document but by doing so. On the actual battlefield. So um, here we are again, discussing Kirkpatrick Sales, the fire of his genius, Robert Fulton, and the American Dream. And we were, and we, when we we were on the air last, I remember um, learning about, um, or rather, I should say, discussing with you all uh, information that I had learned when reading this book not long ago. And uh, one of the most unique things I can uh, Point out as a reminder from the previous podcast was learning about um, the estate that the Livingston family um, lived upon or lived at Claremont. And um, it turns out that that is uh, the name of Robert Fulton's ship, although it's uh, or steamboat being the North River uh, steamboat or known as the Claremont. And, you know, we've been told, we were told for years that Fulton, you know, just named that steamboat uh, boat ship or steamboat vessel on his own terms no it was uh named in honor of the livingston uh family and the estate that they lived on that overlooked the hudson river with the catskill mountains uh not too far away so in this uh segment we're going to learn um some uh unique history on on uh whether or not um attempts had been made well before 1806, 1807, and whether it involved Europeans and Americans, or I should say both. And we, we will also learn more about Robert Livingston, because after all, Robert Livingston is a, a force to reckon with in terms of um, seeing to it that um, big things can come his way when it comes to uh, waterway rights. So let's fasten our seatbelt and let's get uh, moving. We have a lot of ground to cover, but then again, uh, regardless of topic, there's always ground to cover per segment. But in this particular case, I definitely say we got to get moving because you know I have an hour to podcast and thing, and you know just because there's an hour doesn't mean it goes by slow. It can go by quick. So it's like think of an hour. Uh, 20, you know, in the case of a football game, fifteen minutes per quarter, so thirty minute halves. So think about it, sixty minutes to get it right. So we're already into the start, so let's go. So our leadoff question is the following prior to eighteen oh seven, just how long had European and American inventors, or rather I should say engineers, been occupied by the notion, or let alone the idea, of designing boats whose technology would rely upon steam. So just how long do you think both European and American inventors or engineers had been occupied by this notion or idea of designing boats whose technology would rely upon steam? Would you say for well over 30 years? Um, uh, Would you say 20 years? Or would you say less than 20 years? I'd say the answer is choice A for well over 30 years, and the reason why I say for well over 30 years is because historians know that um, from the first uh, discussion uh, topics, let alone the first talks, to um, the first layouts or draft designs took place well before such well before such worldly events occurred like the Seven Years' War, a.k.a. the French and Indian War, as well as the American Revolutionary Movement. So think about it, folks. Americans and Europeans have been um, discussing an idea of um, of boats that would um, rely upon um, non, um, what do you call it, without relying upon the direct um, forces of nature. In 1796... That was the year that Robert Fulton began pursuing his career as an inventor, or I should say an engineer. Gosh, wouldn't that be um, considered a little too late in terms of making a career switch in life? Well, I'd say making career switches was nothing new in the time that our uh, forefathers were living and that of uh, men like Robert Fulton. In the next segment that we... the Rather, I should say in the next segment, um, when I'm on the air again next, we'll learn more about Fulton's um, early uh, childhood life. That will include how he became inspired to uh, take on um, the uh, notion behind uh, drawing, um, drawing objects. Because, you know, it's one thing to become an inventor or an engineer, but you've got to have, obviously, good math skills, and you have to really be good... Um, with problem-solving because it's more than just uh, drawing a boat on a uh, piece of uh, paper. There's a lot more to it. So, anyways, yes, for uh, Robert Fulton in the year 1796, that's when he uh, begins to pursue his career as an inventor. But we go to 1806, which is the year that Fulton first began work on building his steamboat in New York. So, you know, think about that, folks. In um, 1806, that's when Fulton begins his um, work on uh, building a steamboat. And this includes having an assortment of tools along with articles, or I should say journals. Uh, How about calculations? Patent records on existing inventions. In other words, Fulton wants to know how did other people go about... um, devising their uh, boats, how and what kind of calculations were they using, and what kind of tools am I going to need to perfect um, something that's already on the books, but perhaps make it more sophisticated to where the person before me um, had not been able to prevail uh, beforehand. Were the Europeans the first to have constructed a boat powered by steam nearly a quarter of a century prior to 1807 so do any of you all think that the Europeans were the first to have constructed a boat powered by steam nearly a quarter of a century prior to 1807 Uh, the answer is yes a Frenchman named Claude de Jeffois became the first person in Europe whom constructed a steamship that sailed successfully along the Sion River of eastern France. And this was done around July the 15th of 1783. And how ironic, around that same time, being in July of 1783, that something else important is taking place in in, in Paris. The Treaty of Paris, which formally ends the American Revolutionary War. So, you know... Think about it. You know, yes, and not to jump ahead, but, you know, it's one thing for an invention to happen in 1807, but we have to keep in mind that many other people tried to do the same thing or tried to do something that was similar to what Robert Fulton will achieve in the summer of 1807. But we should also be reminded that the Europeans were the first to have constructed a boat powered by steam. And many, in case any of you all are wondering, this Frenchman named Claude de Geffroy How do you spell his last name, if any of you are curi- curious to know? That is spelled J-O-U-F-F-R-O-Y. Now, I know for some of you that might spell, might be pronounced as Geffroy but it's actually spelled Giffroy. Now, the steamship that Geffroy built was known as the Pyroscoff, or the Pyroscafe. That's spelled P-Y-R-O-S-C-A-P-H-E. It was a paddle steamer, but it was more of an experimental steamship. And yes, it sailed along the Sayon River. And one, and the reason why it was so successful for this particular time was that it wasn't so much that this um, <clears throat> paddle steamer sailed along the Sayon River, but it sailed along the Sayon by going or moving against the current. When, uh, when a boat can move against the current, that means it's moving against the body of water. And in this case, the Seon, I mean, not the Seon, the, uh, the Pyroscoff was moving, um, it was using its own source of power. Okay, so the Pyroscoff was not relying upon nature. The Pyroscoff was using technology installed in this paddle steamer ship to make its way against the current. This was a first for its kind. However, the success is shortly lived. How so? Well, not long afterwards, being sometime just after July 15th, the Pyroscoff's hull, being the bottom of the boat, had come apart, resulting in a boiler, and the boiler bursting out steam at a much rapid pace and because the steam was um, because the steam was um, bursting out of the boiler at such a rapid pace, the hull was no longer um, suited to support the um, to support the uh, steam engine's uh, bottom base. To where basically the boat flattens out. You know, usually when I think of a hull flattening out, it's usually because um, the ship um, struck like a shoal or a barge from below, but in this instance, the ship, this boat, is um, giving out internally. You know, just when we think we've perfected something, in this case with the boat, man is being reminded again that technology has a mind of its own. We can still say the same for today with all these new advanced gadgets and electronics you know we're under this assumption that nothing can go wrong, and then all of a sudden something does go wrong. So even um, years earlier, when it came to uh, trying to achieve a first with this new um, type of uh, advancement in ship technology, where man is trying to rely is trying to go forward without having to rely upon the sources of nature, man is being reminded that uh, that there are. Um, forces and boundaries that he must reckon with in terms of um, limitations. So, for uh, Claude uh, de Jafois, this is a huge setback. The good news is that the ship didn't, um, it it wasn't destroyed. In other words, it didn't sink, it didn't um, break apart to where people were left stranded on the water. Claude de Jafois was able to guide the vessel um, back to shore, where it would be sent back to Lyons, Jaffo wrote to government wrote to government officials in Paris, and his statement, or le- rather I should say um, letter statement was backed by other leaders um, whom Jaffo himself knew, confirming that um, there were hints of success. okay? Well, even hints of success when you word it like that to me is vague. Okay, uh, how long was this boat out on the water? How long did the uh, boat sail along the Sayon River in terms of moving against the current until, the, um, until there were issues from within that, um, that forced it to no longer be able to um, sail along to its uh, final destination? So, yes, uh, Juffoy, um writes a, a statement. Other leaders back him up, confirming that, yes, there were hints of success. All of this was done because Mr. Jaffroy was convinced that, if by writing this letter, that he would be able to receive a 15-year steamboat monopoly along French waters. So, in other words, he felt by knowing that he thought by being the first that he would get have sole rights to do just about anything with by having a monopoly along the French waters, well, the government officials sought proof and they got and and they got this um letter statement, but the problem was that there wasn't a whole lot of proof. It's one thing to say, well, I had x amount of success, but even um sentences alone don't um can't sometimes convince those uh, from above, especially if they weren't there to see the to see the event take place. So government officials sought proof, but the evidence that was provided to them was uh, scant. It just uh, didn't uh, stack up. So officials, in um, I guess in Paris it would be safe to say, ended up rejecting the monopoly request on the part of uh, Claude de Jafois. So, yes, it's a valiant uh, try, but he came up uh, shorthanded. Now, uh, whom in America has been credited first in operating the nation's earliest steamboat prior to 1807, the year of Robert Fulton's voyage across the Hudson River? So whom do you think in America has been credited for, for being the first in operating the nation's earliest steamboat prior to 1807? uh was it um does anybody want to take a guess i didn't know anything about this fella i don't know if many of you all would even know about him but that's fine but i'm going to mention his name right now his name was uh john fitch john fitch was uh an individual in my opinion whom could be best described as being a jack of all trades in other words His uh, profession was uh, one that did not involve, that was not confined to just one uh, area of expertise. Um, By being a jack of all trades, he was an engineer, he was an inventor, a businessman, and a clockmaker. So is it fair to say that this guy has um, lots of uh, hands-on experience in terms of not just only being good with his hands, but in terms of, um, what do you call it, Uh, doing math problem solving, uh, mechanical matters, The answer is yes. I thought it would be worth um, telling you all a little uh, brief history about him. He was born in January of 1743. That's the same year that Thomas Jefferson was born. As a matter of fact, Mr. Jefferson was born in uh, the middle of April 1743. Uh, John Fitch was born in Windsor, Connecticut. And you would think by being a jack-of-all-trades that he would have had a lot of formal schooling. Well, I was shocked to find out that he had very minimal formal schooling. So he went about assigning himself to a clockmaker. He was very, very passionate about this and he wanted to learn more and and felt that, okay, if I can assign myself to a clockmaker and an apprenticeship, I will be able to have success uh, one day when I'm on my own. Well, sadly, um, this apprenticeship uh, was a disaster. He was not allowed to, to learn nor see firsthand how watchmaking got done. Is it fair to say that um, he was being used back then? Yes. You know, I always would have thought back in colonial times when people got apprenticed that they were being looked after. Most of the time they were in terms of actually learning the trades firsthand. But it is fair to say that there were instances where... Um, those whom were apprenticed were uh, not being treated properly and uh, were uh, being taken advantage of. So sadly for Mr. Fitch, um, because of this uh, setback, he decides instead that he's going to take matters into his own hands. He's going to teach himself how to repair clocks and watches, and he succeeds in the end. So the bottom line is uh, he is able to uh, achieve his um, dream his life's work. Of course, his life's work is more than just repairing uh, clocks and watches, but he was able to do it without um, having to go from above, given that he had not been uh, given uh, proper uh, treatment uh, when he had been originally apprenticed as to start out. John Fitch served briefly in the Revolutionary War as a gunsmith. Any of you all know what a gunsmith is? Uh, one who repairs, refits to making weaponry, weaponry, a.k.a. rifles and muskets. He did all this for the Continental Army. In 1780, he worked as a surveyor in Kentucky, and in the early 1780s, he was surveying land in the Northwest Territory, territory that we now know as Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin. So it is fair to say that Mr. Fitch wasn't missing out on anything. When exactly, though, did he begin working on his grand plan for steam-powered boat transportation? Was it in uh, 1795? Was it in 1790 or 1785? The answer is choice C, 1785. You know, his um, plan behind um, getting steam-powered boat transportation um, up and running was one that uh, had some uh, unique twists and turns. Mr. Fitch had gone before the Continental Congress for steamboat funding. He wasn't able to get any money from the Continental Congress. I'm not sure how in the world Congress could even was able to even exist, um, given that here we are two years um, into the post-revolutionary war uh, world, and yet Congress is struggling to print money, because remember, folks, the real entities sadly running the government are the states. Think about it. Thirteen states, thirteen different currencies, thirteen different policies. So anything the national government, being in the form of the Continental Congress, is trying to do, it's being shot down. And if they do pass anything, it's it's a stroke of luck. So... Mr. Fitch is unable to get money from the Continental Congress for steamboat funding. He goes instead uh, by pursuing a different route where he seeks assistance from multiple state legislatures where he succeeded in acquiring enough funding to earn a 14-year monopoly for steamboat traffic on many, or I should say, on various states' inland waterways. Inland, folks, that means... um, like say west of um, ocean, west of the Atlantic Ocean, or inland, meaning west of say like Chesapeake Bay, but inland meaning that you are um, that you are directly within the confines of the state that you live in. That yes, there is a you know river, but it's not actually um, along a coastal plain, if that's the best way to describe it. So. This it sounds like Mr. Fitch is in the right direction. He's um, he's gone to many states seeking money. Think about this: if the Continental Congress can't give him the money, then would you be tempted to want to go to the to various states for assistance? Yes. After all, thirteen separate entities. Hey, I can get all kinds of deals, and use thirteen different kinds of currency if I have to. So yes, uh he has better fun better uh, success in uh going through um through the states to where he is getting um monopolies uh for steamboat traffic on various states inland waterways. And of course, when we think of monopolies, folks, in this case we're not talking the board game and fake money. Monopolies or monopoly is where there is total control And no competition from uh, outsiders, no competition. uh, You have pretty much full control over what it is that you have invested in. And you have first rights. You will always have first rights. And even if someone wanted to uh, challenge the monopoly, they would have to go through an entire uh, legal process just to be able to have any kind of uh, rights. In this case, uh, inland waterway navigation. So, for Mr. Fitch, he's also found success in getting further funding from businessmen in Philadelphia. And that shouldn't come as a no-brainer or a surprise, because, you know, prior to and still even after uh, the American Revolutionary War, Philadelphia is America's largest city. Even come 1787, when the Constitutional Convention takes place, I want to say there's about 40,000 people living in Philadelphia, Of course, you know, from the previous podcast, we learned that in 1807, there were 83,000 people living in New York. But we should bear in mind that um, in the late 1780s, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is still America's largest city. John Fitch did not... um, If there's one thing he didn't have access to, think about this. He couldn't find this in America. So, what is Mr. Fitch not having access to? Because... What do, what do, okay, um, prior to uh, anybody coming up with a steamboat, you know, we already know that man was relying upon uh, the sources of nature to uh, to move his um, ships from point A to point B. So there's no motor, there's no motor, there's no engine. Let's keep that in mind. Because there was a time when man sailed the waters without, without a a motor and somehow man managed to do it so what does mr. Fitch not have access to engines not just engines but European engines Of course European engines there were a number of them but most notably if I thought if I could tell you one off the top of my head it was the watt engine it was a steam engine created by mr. James watt of Scotland you know, think of like Watt light, well, when we think of Watts, um, that can be kind of uh, linked to him in a sense uh, from an electrical standpoint. But so basically, yes, the um, Watt engine was a steam engine created by Mr. James Watt of Scotland. It was unique in that the design, or rather I should say the engine design, proved to be a money saver. So in other words, Mr. Watt had created an engine design that um, used less fuel, and because it used less fuel, um, the uh, engine itself was licensed based per the amount of fuel saved. So that, to me, is pretty revolutionary for its time. So yes, it's um, hard enough that Mr. Fitch cannot get access to a European engine in America, but there is a reason for that too, though. Britain, prior to 1807, or I should say into the start of the early 19th century, did not allow exportation of new technologies to her former uh, colony, North America, or should I say the United States, maybe Canada. And you know why, folks? Is it fair to say that there are many who... um, whom were loyal to the crown during the American Revolution that sought refuge in Canada, or asylum? Yes. So are they being looked after? Yes, because Canada is still considered, is still under British uh, domain and would remain un, under British domain pretty much up until about um, 1867 or come the start of the 1870s at least. So, um so, at one time, folks, let's just keep this in mind, even after the American Revolution has ended, there are still some um types of um commodities that Britain will not um ship to um her former colony being america of course it it will take um the, the Jay Treaty of seventeen ninety four and in one of those um in one of the provisions of the Jay Treaty of seventeen ninety four was that um uh, England and America. Would work together to resume um, better uh, trading ties, which they did for about a um, close to a 15 year span prior to, um, not to get ahead of the game or anything, but prior to when um, other um, events would um, unravel to where America would one day uh, down the road have to fight a second war for her independence. So basically, these, um, the Britain is not allowing exportation of new technologies to her former colony, being America, or the United States, rather. So, Fitch, um, Mr. Fitch himself, would have to go to Philadelphia, and he met an inventor by the name of Henry Voigt, whom would go about assisting him in building America's first steamboat. Okay, well... There might be a setback, but there's always room for another door to open, and it seems like Mr. Fitch has found that. Well, what's significant about August 22nd, 1787? Just a month before the Constitution is fully um, approved of by um, 39 men whom would go on to sign uh, the document in September of 1787. But what's significant about August 22nd of 1787? Well, um, John Fitch's steamboat, and it's a unique name, folks. It's called the Perseverance. The Perseverance performed a trial run along Delaware, uh, along the Delaware River, where the boat itself moved, thanks in part to having oars on both sides and maneuvering along the Delaware River. Of course, when I think of oars, I think of you know people, you know, two people on a canoe, one on each side one person on one side, one on the opposite. But they're taking oars and they're paddling in uh, opposite directions so that they can um, guide the boat to where they want it to be going. And, of course, when I also think of oars, I think of um, rowing. You know, on the collegiate level, I will uh, sometimes see on television where, uh, and it's in the Olympics as well too, where they're, uh crew is really what the sport is, Where um, You've got um, rowers on um, per each side of the boat, taking turns paddling, where everyone's paddling to where um, to where they are trying to outmaneuver uh, their opponents to see who can get uh, from point A to point B um, at record speed pace. So yes, this uh, steamboat, the perseverance, um, um, what do you call it? it, it performs a trial run along the Delaware River where it, the boat alone moved thanks in part to um, having oars on both sides. But the Perseverance traveled at only three miles an hour. That seems like a snail's pace to me. However, in the fall of 1787, this uh, ship made uh, more successful trial runs up and down the Delaware River. But for some reason, though, there were others who just weren't convinced that this was the real thing, so John Fitch and Henry Voigt uh, come June of 1790 uh, go bigger by introducing a 60-foot boat powered by a steam engine that was equipped with a stern, equipped with stern-mounted oars which resembled the motion of this. I found this to be interesting that the stern-mounted oars resembled the motion of swimming ducks' feet. Think about, you know, when ducks are swimming, they are, you know, constantly moving their feet in a circular uh, direction, you know, to uh, for, for, what do you call it, for energy usage in terms of swimming from point A to point B, like on a lake or on a pond. But this 60-foot boat um, could handle up to 30 passengers for round-trip uh, voyages, most notably between Philadelphia and Burlington, New Jersey. The 60 foot boat saw enhanced improvement in speed around six to eight miles an hour. That is a huge uh, step in the right direction from, say, the Perseverance uh, going at only three miles an hour. So, what is stopping uh, John Fitch? Well, I hate to say this, although this new steamboat was revolutionary. Given that it could handle up to 30 passengers round trip, and yes, it could go just just shy of 10 miles an hour, the new steamboat um, unfortunately did experience its share of non-life-threatening accidents. And of course, you know it might it might be one thing to have just one or two non-life-threatening accidents, but they were getting, say, well over 25. So, unfortunately, because of the multiple non-life-threatening accidents that took place, this uh, was one of the contributing factors to why Mr. Fitch did not receive a broad monopoly patent. So, in other words, he never was able to get that 14-year um, monopoly uh, request. However, on August 26, 1791, he uh, was given a U.S. patent for having invented a steam-powered boat but there again the monopoly rejection which um, occurred led many in- investors to go elsewhere and although his boats were mechanically successful he now was in a um, not-so-good place because he lacked money or I should say resources to move further ahead so sadly he died um, In 1798, uh, he pretty much died broke, but, you know, he did um, try valiantly, to say the least. Now, uh, we're going to move on here to Robert Livingston, and, you know, I, I know I've mentioned some things about Mr. Livingston, but I can probably assure you this much that even after today's podcast, there could be a chance that we might learn more about him in other podcasts down the road. That's not a bad thing either. So it, it is fair to say, though, that uh, Mr. Livingston, well, of course, there are plenty of Livingstons, but um, Chancellor Robert Livingston, it would be fair to say that he is a man of um, numerous achievements. He is a man of um high prestige, power, you know, a chancellor is someone of um, high status, a a chancellor, think of like, you know, sometimes our colleges and universities today, they may not, um, those who are, um, who are in charge of running the um, university, in some instances we call them a president, and in other instances they are referred to as chancellors, you know, in other words, like deans. Of uh, higher uh, learning. So, Robert Livingston is referred to as the Chancellor. What post did Chancellor Robert Livingston get bestowed upon him in 1794? Five years after George Washington uh, gets sworn in as America's first president, Uh, what post do you think Chancellor Livingston got bestowed upon him in 1794? He became the first president to to the New York Society for Promotion of Arts, Agriculture, and Manufactures. Well, you know it is good for for there to be diversity because when you get uh, when you become president of a society like this one, it it's not going to revolve around just one thing. It's got to revolve around uh, an assortment of other um, essential um, sciences and uh, and what we call. Um, what we call uh, business sectors. Now, Chancellor Livingston was one who knew what was best for America, considering his background included service, serving in the Continental Congress and was Mr. Livingston on that Committee of Five which uh, wrote the Declaration of Independence. Of course, yes, Thomas Jefferson's the author, but didn't, but didn't Mr. Jefferson need assistance? Remember, as I've said before, and I've said, and I'll say it again, and I'm, I'm sure I could say it somewhere else down the road. Didn't Thomas Jefferson Jefferson had to revise the Declaration of Independence more than five times, right, folks? Yes. How many times do you think it took him before it was finally uh, agreed upon by the Committee of Five from within in terms of his wording, language? so that it could be assured that it would be adopted by the greater um, body that was awaiting for this grand document. Thomas Jefferson had uh, had to uh, rewrite and revise the Declaration of Independence. It underwent 86 revisions, folks. I don't know how Jefferson survived with all those revisions, but we must keep in mind, too, that Mr. Jefferson was an excellent writer, and in order to be a great writer, you probably will have to encounter your share of revisions before getting it just right. So thanks to Mr. John Adams, Mr. Franklin, and yes, Mr. Livingston and Mr. Sherman, they were all there to help uh, Jefferson, but then again they all uh, had to rely upon each other in order to get this thing out of the committee and back onto the main floor so that separation from England still stood a chance, which obviously it did. So yes, Robert Livingston is no stranger to um, public service, having been uh, yes serving in the Continental Congress to being on the Committee of Five that wrote the Declaration of Independence. He's always looking for new ways to make America better, based upon his status, as well as the, as well as greater connections. It would be fair to say that if you are a chancellor like he is, that. You are going to have connections and obviously you want to make sure that you are using your connections wisely aka don't be burning bridges chancellor livingston's interests behind the idea for steamboat navigation did it take root in 1800 did it take root around 1796 or did it take root around 1775 uh the answer is uh choice b. It took root around seventeen ninety six It was during this time where he was actually on a boat and it was on a boat that um that uh was um, that didn't have that didn't rely upon uh the forces of nature. It was a boat that was uh built by a New Hampshire craftsman uh named Samuel Morey or more. The boat uh traveled from lower Manhattan to Greenwich Village. And not only did it travel from the Lower Manhattan uh, to Greenwich Village, but it did the same thing back. It traveled at five miles an hour. That seems like a good start. So, uh, is there anything holding uh, Mr. Livingston back here? No, there's nothing holding him back. But I should point out that um, Robert Livingston's wife, uh, her brother, being a Mr. John Stevens, Mr. John Stevens lives in New Jersey, and he himself has married into a family that has, um, has some uh, strong connections. I'll tell you, these connections never hurt, especially when you're in the high-end status of society. So um, Mrs. Livingston's wife, Mrs. Livingston's brother, John Stevens, had been involved with steamboat designs and works for some period of time. Now we're going to get into a two-part question here that involves not only Chancellor Livingston, but uh, his wife's brother, uh, John Stevens. uh, Part one is the following. Would Chancellor Livingston and John Stevens partner together in requesting for for a steamboat be constructed? Yes. It just so turns out that Mr. Livingston had spent an entire year designing a boat based upon horizontal wheel setup okay when you're going horizontal folks is that across or downward downward vertical is where you're going across so for mr livingston it's one thing to want to design a boat but it's another thing to um design a boat for um, how the wheel itself is going to be set up, because you know if the wheel setup isn't right, then how is the wheel going to be able to um, guide the boat? You know, guide the boat in terms of getting it into the direction where it needs to be going. Well, that was that's just a, that was just one of um, a handful of dilemmas there for uh, Chancellor Livingston. But as for part two. The part two uh, question to this uh, matter is the following. Uh, Whom did uh, both men go to for building the actual boat? They went to a fellow by the name of Nicholas Roosevelt, who was a New Jersey craftsman whom had a machine shop along the Passaic River, which is in New Jersey. And there is a town in New Jersey known as Passaic, which is not far from uh, Pine Brook up in the uh, northern part of the state, uh, not too far from uh, New York City. After um, boat construction began uh, on the part of Mr. Nicholas Roosevelt, Chancellor Livingston is doing his own work behind the scenes. And what do you think that would be, folks? He's going before the New York State Legislature. And he is going before them left and right to seek out what, folks? Is he wanting to seek out a grant? Is he wanting to seek a monopoly? Or is he just wanting to seek some general uh, financial aid for uh, short-term funding? Well, if I'm Chancellor Livingston, I would want to be seeking out a monopoly. Hey, I've got the money. The bigger question is, are you all able to fund this? Not just short-term, but long-term to where it's going to remain in my hands. So for Chancellor Livingston, yes, he is going to go um, before the New York State Legislature. Requesting a monopoly where he alone would get full control over steamboat transportation throughout New York waters. Of course, when I think of New York waters during this time, it's going to be the Hudson River. March 27, 1798, Chancellor Robert Livingston was granted a full monopoly for the next 20 years. But, there is a stipulation the New York State Legislature has has advised him that he will be required to have a boat. And not just a boat, but one that is of a 20-ton a max, along with moving at best four miles an hour within a year's time. So he doesn't have a whole lot of time. I mean, yeah, he can be gloat, he can be thankful, but... You know, this monopoly is not guaranteed until you actually physically produce something. So, on October twenty-first of seventeen ninety-eight, Chancellor Livingston's boat that was uh, constructed by Mister uh, Nicholas um, by uh, Mister uh, um, by the fellow by Mister Nicholas Roosevelt in New Jersey. Pardon me, folks. I got a little sidetracked there. But, yes, by Mister Nicholas Roosevelt in New Jersey. He um, constructs this boat for Chancellor Livingston and come October 21st of 1798, the Chancellor's boat is out on the water moving between speeds of three to six miles an hour with the wind and tide from behind. You would think Mr. Livingston is going to make it. You think it would be fair to say that he might just make it. Well, believe it or not, folks, even someone of his status On this day is going to see some misfortunes. This boat sees the engine go completely whack to where other cracks and internal issues resulted in the boat grounding. Well, I can only imagine what the look on Mr. Livingston's face would have been. However, I should ask you all this question. Despite the misfortunes of October 21st, 1798, Did Chancellor Robert Livingston remain steadfast behind steam navigation and his monopoly on the New York waters? Yes, and this uh, grand envision of his got enhanced further by serving as an ambassador or minister to France in 1801 where he would go about negotiating with French officials behind establishing open transportation involving American exports through New Orleans. Why is New Orleans important, folks? I mean, Louisiana hasn't been admitted into the Union just yet, but the port of New Orleans is important, folks, because it's all about the Mississippi River. Remember, folks, the Mississippi River? Most of you may not even know this. I learned it some years back, but it doesn't actually start in Mississippi. It starts up north in Minnesota. So this, the Mississippi River is, is a north to south river, and so the river can um, benefit both northern and uh, or really what you would say Midwest economies, but this river will also uh, benefit southern uh, economies as well. So yes, open transportation involving, say, American exports through New Orleans, that is Shipping uh, goods out of New Orleans to uh, European nations, being Britain, France, Spain. But I think it'd be fair to say that, you know, France and Spain are uh, still fighting over New Orleans. And then how about land acquisitions? Well, when I think of land acquisitions, hopefully you all would think of this too. Louisiana Territory. Because after all... You know, is it fair to say that Robert Livingston might have a hand in, um, with, um, with what what's at stake in trying to get uh, territory um, f- from France uh, without having to go to war over it? Perhaps so. Uh, had Americans begun moving westward, and what I mean by westward, folks, is I'm not talking about Oregon and California. Of course, that won't come until the late 1840s with the gold rush of 1849. But had Americans begun moving westward into what we now know as the Northwest Territory, Kentucky, Tennessee territories as early as the late 1780s, including the start of the 1790s? Yes, they had. However, it was during the early years of westward expansion that settlers didn't appear 100% unified as a whole. There were some settlers who were unified, but not everybody was. This could be attributed to a host of factors, but if one were to ask me if if I could pin it to one, I would say that it was mainly due to many people moving, being seen as one of individual choice. Individual choice meaning that People were moving for a variety of reasons, but, but they were um, moving further west for isolation purposes. Isolation where they felt that if the further west I go, uh, government won't be so uh, strict on me. Uh, government won't be as infringing. How about um, the further west one goes, could that also pose as a as an issue that might result in one day sectional conflicts. Yes, sectional conflicts where, say, a large swath of territory might be cut to where, say, two states become free states, but two states out of the territory carved out would become slave states. It's possible. Yes, so just because you move into a territory west of where you originally lived, it doesn't mean that you might be immune from uh, conflicts where there are those who want to expand something like slavery, and then you are reckoning with those who do not want um, slavery to be expanded into into a certain section of westward territory. And of course, as I mentioned from the previous podcast, when... um, the Constitution was being debated in 1787 in Philadelphia. The delegates came to a compromise, most notably by Rufus King of Massachusetts, who suggested that no slavery expansion would be allowed in the Northwest Territories, or the Northwest Territory that we now know of today as Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin. So that was a, um, a compromise there where uh, slavery would not be allowed in the uh, Northwest Territory. And then, last but not least, you've got rebellion as another issue. You know, it's one thing to move westward, but is it going to lead to rebellion? To where America, being the government, is going to have to send armies uh, westward to quash rebellions that were frequently going on prior to 1787 in the post-American Revolutionary War era. So there's a lot of things at stake here, folks. Uh, The solution, though, behind unresolved westward expansion for Robert Livingston, as well as President Thomas Jefferson, centered around something that has been in existence since the beginning of time. But it became even more prevalent, knowing that this was probably the only thing that could really keep America together. Commerce. Trade. Trade. You know, trade is really an essential for survival. You know, trade was probably something that might have uh, prevented um, not just rebellions, other rebellions from taking place, but trade could have also prevented what for for a good period of time um, what would come later down on down the road, a civil war for America. So for Thomas Jefferson and Robert Livingston, they see commerce as a key essential behind resolving all, un, behind all existing, or I should say unresolved, uh, westward expansion issues. Commerce had been at the heart of European expansion dating back to when the first settlements in America, or rather I should say North America, took place most notably at Jamestown, um, then for, with um, Plymouth and Massachusetts, because think about this you know commerce you know when the english arrived to what we now know as jamestown they didn't they weren't prepared they really weren't prepared at all so the indians were generous enough to give them some food and what were the europeans willing to give over in return copper pots metal tools some guns that was an that was a form of commerce right there between english and um Uh, what we would call acts of trade between English or Europeans and um, Indian um, tribes. So, besides from the first, um, what do you call it, besides from the first um, movements of European expansion with the first settlements in uh, North America, commerce also resulted in British colonies expanding to eventual rebellion, and when I think of rebellion, I think of the uh, post-French uh, and Indian War era after 1763. But when I think of eventual rebellion, how about the non-importation agreements of 1774, which pretty much uh, prohibited all British goods from being allowed into uh, American ports. And the um, agreement would stay on the um, books as long as necessary, but if if no... Um, agreement was made to lift uh, the existing sanctions that came under those intolerable intolerable or coercive acts that Parliament had passed in 1774. Then, obviously, the Continental Congress would convene in May of 1775, which they did. So, it's just another example of how Commerce, prior to uh, separating from England and leading up to separation from England, had its share of prominent um, prosperity. All of a sudden, now, undergoing a complete 360 um, backwards um, direction, all because of uh, the injustices that uh, Parliament had imposed upon her subjects without proper formal uh, consent. So commerce um, would be the driving force behind improving America's current infrastructure where better networks and waterways like canals would improve upon trade but most importantly, a riverway access starting in New Orleans with the Mississippi River being Chancellor Livingston's goal. What had John Stevens, uh, Robert Livingston's brother-in-law, achieved in 1802 while Mr. Livingston was away in France? Stevens designed a small boat that stayed in place the entire time from journeying across the New York Harbor from his estate in Hoboken, New Jersey, to Paulus Hook being a ferry landing on Manhattan's west side. The boat was 25 feet long and from five to six feet wide. It had a speed of four miles an hour. Mr. Stevens, this was a big accomplishment, but he knew that if um, if he uh, announced this and it was put in the papers, that it would cause um, uproar, because after all, doesn't Mr. Livingston, is he the one that has the monopoly? Yes. So Mr. Livingston's in France, so yeah, his brother-in-law can say all he wants that I did something uh, revolutionary, but for uh, Chancellor Livingston, well, I wasn't there to see it, so I, I don't have any proof of it. So tell me all you want, but if I don't have any hardcore evidence of it, then this, um, then this, uh, Achievement to me, is null and void as of right now. So last but not least, um, after Robert Livingston returned to America from France, then would John Stevens consider challenging the existing monopoly, meaning another boat um, contest along the Hudson River to see whom, in fact, could make history. But in the spring of 1807, a young Robert Fulton began his mission of a lifetime, where in a few short months, history would unravel on America's waters like never before. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, folks. Uh, but then again, when, we, when have we never covered a lot of ground? Well, um, thank you for your time, as always. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to learn more about Robert Fulton from his early years as a child, and how he um, rose to um, that of engineer. What I can tell you this much is that he had some other uh, jobs before becoming an engineer, and you might be surprised at what those jobs were, but they were relevant. After all, uh, many of our uh, famous inventors did have to start somewhere, and even they too have unique stories to tell. thank you for your time as always I look forward to being back on the air again next and thank you again for being such ardent listeners Uh, thank you and uh, stay safe for now